Um, so, can start sending them. Hashtag? No, you don't need the, you don't need the hashtag. No, we're not, there's not Twitter. And um, this is going to be recorded, okay, for the sake of those who are not um, here. I think some people went to pack, <laughs> but that's okay. All right. Okay. Um, are there any questions off offhand from here, from the uh, from the uh, Pastor Dave? You can come sit up on that stool. This is how um, all the cool people at our church sit. So. All right. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, I had a very interesting undergrad experience. I, I had a lot of AP credit, so I came in as uh, a sophomore to college but I ended up taking five years to graduate because I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to be. So I started in chemistry and I journeyed all the way through engineering, um, business school, um, biochemistry. I, I had six different majors during my five years of undergrad. I finished with microbiology and genetics as my degree. So before I entered ministry, I was pursuing a, a PhD in genetic engineering as an extension of that undergrad study. God doesn't waste anything. All those experiences help me relate to people now as a pastor. So nothing is wasted. <laughs> so many. Um, one is to acknowledge that when you're in college, you're not in the real world. You, you have a very weird situation where you're in, living in a small village with all your friends, and you have so much disposable time. And so the way that you make friends, it's so easy because everybody lives within like five minutes of each other on a campus. That if, it's not a, you guys, if, if you go to commuter school, it's a little different. I went to University of Illinois where everyone could get to each other within five to ten minutes. And a heavy day was if you have, like, three classes. So, I mean, think about that for a second. When else in your life are you going to be groaning over three hours commitment a day? And so you have so much time. You can build wonderful friendships. Do that. Take absolute advantage. But remember that as soon as you graduate, it's not going to be so easy to maintain your friendships. It's going to be harder to schedule. You're going to have to be more intentional People will move far away. And so one of the things I really encourage in the level of friendship is to know that as soon as you graduate, life will change dramatically. The rules will change and, and all that. The same will go with your spiritual life. So much of college spirituality is externally driven. There's usually a campus ministry or church, and people are always chasing after you, discipling you. When I was in college, discipleship wasn't discipleship. It was um, a mature Christian chasing and pestering an immature Christian to keep staying at it. To me, that's not discipleship. That's like life support or CPR. Um, remember that when you're in college age, 
so much of your faith journey is driven by the insistence of others, by people setting rules and creating programs that drive you towards Jesus. But as soon as you graduate, there's going to be this weird feeling of like being out on your own. And you can get away with not showing up to small group or house church for months, and people will call you, but it's all up to you. Uh, and so a- as a result of that, you're going to have to find a way to walk with Jesus from your own heart rather than depending on somebody else to always need to push you from behind. The last thing, it's kind of weird. I don't know what Pastor DL teaches about this stuff, so I could be getting in trouble here. But I think it's really important to be on the lookout for a life mate during college and the years shortly thereafter. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And here's what I mean by that. You can't really act on it much when you're in college because you're just not really ready to make life commitments yet. But I've discovered that the biggest part of getting married is being decisive when you're younger. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people... God leads somebody to them. They, they could make a life together, but they just kind of wait. They hold out forever going, I'm waiting for like this perfect person. Um, and then years go by, and then more years go by, and what happens at the end is their options diminish more and more and more. Now, I believe that God does lead us to someone, but I'm not of the belief that there's just this one person ordained for you and you're finding a needle in the haystack. It's more about the journey of discovering how do I share my life with somebody else. And that's why I think, I don't mean being hasty, but being decisive. When I married my wife, there were a few lingering doubts on non-essential issues. Small personality, not like faith and life value issues, but small things. And there was a part of me that said, maybe I should hold out for somebody who's 100% compatible. But instead we said, you know, I really believe we're called to each other. The big, big important things line up perfectly. Let's just marry each other and make a life. And we have made the best of it and it has been an amazing, amazing journey for us. And so I'm encouraging you not to put off until you're like 35. And then after you've made this huge career, you're like, oh, now I should maybe not be alone. If you start thinking and praying then, it may often be a great, great challenge. And part of the, the thing about when you're waiting till too long in life is the longer you spend single, the more you become most comfortable with your favorite person, you. You get very set in your ways. It's very hard to open up the necessary space in your heart to actually share with another human being. And marriage is a huge act of selflessness. And the older you get, the more like you, you just realize, I like things the way I like things. I don't want someone coming and messing with my mojo. And so I find that the biggest challenge for our 35-plus folks who are single is that it's really hard for them to accommodate another life because their heart is in some ways shrinking. So... This is difficult for me to say because I don't want to give you the message that what you hear from me is, ah, just roll the dice, take a gamble. That is not what I'm saying to you, right, at all. But what I'm saying is don't put off these important things until after you've made all the money and got the career established. Don't then suddenly look around and go, now let me complete my life with a mate. So much of those early formative years are meant to be shared in hardship with your life's mate learning to struggle through the early years rather than going, now I made my millions, let me go get me a woman. You'll never know if she wants your millions or she wants you. You've got to struggle together. You've got to grow together. You've got to serve each other, make sacrifices together, grow in the Lord together. And we do that very well when we're younger. So I, I'm, I'm in this huge campaign at my church to push for younger marriage ages down to like the mid to late 20s rather than the mid to late 30s.
because I think those people learn so much more about themselves and about the Lord walking through those early years together rather than coming as finished products into something. Yes. No. I learned through a lot of mistakes <laughs> um, that you can only give your heart away so many times before it's really challenging to know where your own heart is. Um, I, I don't recommend this. I don't teach my children to date casually, but I dated casually, meaning having a girlfriend wasn't like this life event for me. It was just not being alone. Some, some small person is trying to get in there. <coughs> there she is. Come on. <laughs> I knew it was a little. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she wasn't my first um, girlfriend. But she's the only person I've loved ever at this depth. And that was the great thing was for me, when I met her, it was as if I finally understood what I was supposed to feel like when I found her. I knew with my wife within, I'd say, a week of our beginning our courtship that this was the girl I was going to marry. I didn't tell her that because that's a good way to scare off a woman. <laughs> but I just knew in my gut that she was the one. And I was the first one to tell her I loved her. And I told her four months into the relationship, and she, here's what she literally said to me. That's nice. <laughs> she wasn't ready yet. But that's okay, because I wasn't waiting till it could be reciprocated. I just needed to let her know where I stood and how I felt. And she caught up to me later. She's a little slower than me, so she caught up to me later. But we have an amazing marriage. Most rewarding relationship of my earthly life has been my marriage. So good, I can't wait for my kids to grow up and leave the house so we could just be us two again. <laughs> you had a second question? Well, and that's part of what I'm trying to accelerate is for men to actually just grow up. I feel like men in America today are stuck in perpetual childishness, not childhood. It's good to be stuck in childhood but they're stuck in childishness. It is so hard to find real men. Even the ones with full facial hair aren't always real men. This one is. But <laughs> just because just you can grow a beard don't make you a man. And I'm frustrated with the level of maturity among my brothers in the church. To be honest with you, I expect way more than, than I get from 18-year-olds. I don't know why 18-year-olds have to act like idiots. But majority 18-year-olds I meet, I'm like, I don't respect you at all. I can't find something in you that I latch onto that makes me feel like I, I, that there's a fellow man. It's more like I got to take care of you. I don't feel like I have a fellow man staring at me. And I feel like by 18, that, those kind of character traits should start to be developed. Now, in all honesty, it's hard because, um, especially in the immigrant community, our dads aren't very expressive. I meet very few Asian men that tell me, my father walked with me and imparted manhood to me and showed me what it was like to live in this world. My dad just basically went, mm-hmm, and you know, that's all that my dad did. And so I don't really credit him for learning a lot of that. And so I get why sometimes it's that way for us. And I don't want me to scold you. I just mean, rather than waiting till the 40s when men start to mature, maybe we can begin the maturing process sooner. And I think a relationship is a great context in which men actually grow up. A woman can really help you mature as a person if you're ready for it.
Yeah. Well, yeah, I, one person. One person I discipled, and um, this person, I was convinced beyond all doubt that they were called to and embraced singleness as a gift. Okay? Most other people accept singleness as defeat, as a way of not hating their life, even though I mean, it's a way of saying that I'm going to make official my hopelessness that I think I'm sentenced to aloneness, and so I'll accept it and turn into a ministry. And the way I know that is as I cross-examine, what I find is even though they say they have the calling to get to singleness, they don't have the gift for it. They don't seem to welcome and cherish it as the means by which they can do more for the Lord. It feels more like a futile acceptance. And I don't think that's a- at all to do with the calling for it. And you have to understand a call to singleness is also a call to celibacy with joy. I have only met one person that I believe had the gift of celibacy with joy. Everybody else wants to get it on. Sorry, that's just the way life is. And we live in a hypersexualized culture. You can't afford to pretend something is true of you that's not because you will fall and bring a lot of people with you if you're irresponsible in identifying that you have some gift of singleness. And I've, I've met thousands of people. For me to say at age 45, I've only known one person with a cult of singleness should explain to you just how rare a thing that really is. Okay? And it is an apart, it's a deviation from God's general design for human experience. He made man for woman and woman for man. That's the default setting for most lives. Okay? Yeah. There was a, a question that came. Uh, what inspired you to become a pastor? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know if, I think maybe I can trace it mostly back to the Urbana Mission Conference. Um, Just before I graduated, I went to an Urbana Mission Conference. We were, I thought I was going to be a missionary at one point, but I I remember singing this hymn with 20,000 other people in the same stadium where I watched basketball games. And something just started shaking my heart. And I made this promise to the Lord that I would give my life to somehow serving him. I didn't share the story already, did I? And then uh, I forgot about it. You know how you sometimes write checks to the Lord and you forget? Um, And I went off to grad school after college. And the project I was working on was at the Centers for Disease Control right next door to Emory. We were developing a vaccine for traveler's diarrhea, Montezuma's Revenge. You know, you can go to any country, eat eat any drink, drink drink any water right out of the tap, eat any fruit from the, the vendors on the street, and nothing. You would never get sick. That was going to be awesome, man. And so, you know, like I've, I've said to the Lord, this is my way of forwarding missions. Thousands of missionaries and generations to come will eat whatever they want and not have diarrhea. And that's my contribution to the Great Commission. And the Lord said, nice try, but that's not really what you meant when you said those things to me at the Urbana conference. It was meant to be a much more direct involvement. So what I felt God was saying to me after I completed my first year of study in the doctoral program I was rocking it, guys. I mean, it wasn't like I was in despair. I, I was doing so well. I had built a brand new house in suburban Atlanta. I had a new car. I had a great girlfriend. I found an awesome church. I was a leader there. Nothing was wrong in my life. But then something was wrong because I just kept feeling like I was living some other's life as an imposter. And I couldn't understand why I didn't feel good about this awesome life. Um, so I began praying and questioning, and the Lord said, I can find a 1,000 guys who will take your place at Emory. 
a thousand guys who would kill to be accepted into the program you're in. This traveler's diarrhea vaccine will get made with or without you. I can't find as many guys who will say yes to a calling of ministry. You once said yes, I'm cashing that check. I think there's maybe 1% of people on this earth who would joyfully say yes to a vocational career in ministry. And if you even have inklings in that direction, that's almost as good as a calling because so few are the ones who would even entertain the thought. And so I, I just, I heard that. I couldn't shake it, and I went to seminary thinking maybe, maybe I'll go and begin the studies. And here, here's, what, here's where the bridge got burned. I asked my advisor uh, in grad school, can I take a year's leave of absence to try studying theology, and if it doesn't work out, I'm going to come back to grad school. And she dropped about six F-bombs and said, I took a huge risk accepting you. I mean, I, I, didn't, I did okay in undergrad, but not that great. I, I beat out 600 other applicants from Ivy League schools to get one of the four spots in this program. It was a miracle. And she goes, I, it was a gamble. We took a long shot on you. Now that you're finally getting good at what you do, you're going to leave the program for a year? It, very unprofessional. She really swore a lot for a lady. <laughs> and she goes, here's what I think of your thinking leave of absence. I'm cleaning up the language. But she basically said, don't you ever show your face to me again. You're gone. And that was God's way of saying, when you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. I, I was such a coward. I was like, if it doesn't work out, who does that with a ministry calling, right? But that was what I tried. Are you getting the theme here? I'm a very um, bad Christian who became a pastor. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I just, I, I got kicked out of the program. And I ended up, you know, the, the program paid me 35 grand a year to be in school. And so now I had a mortgage. I had car payments. I had no income. So I went hat in hand to my older brother at church and asked him to give me a job as a janitor in his company. And so for the last three months I was in Atlanta, I was, I was a janitor. And when you work as a janitor for a co- Korean employer, they don't really give you the gear. He gave me a roll of paper towels and a bottle of Windex. And I was washing the urinals without gloves, just wiping with the paper towels, gagging every night. Women's bathroom was more horrific than the men's. I just don't even, like, it was just not a good, but it was a great way for God to shape my character before that. And then each step of the way, I just felt like, wow, Lord, I'm finding joy in what I do. I'm not dread- dreading this, but I love, I, Pastor Dale and I, when we talk, we're like, we can't believe we get to do this for our jobs. The rest of you sad sacks who have to go and sit in a cube and do Excel spreadsheets, my goodness. It just makes me want to want to croak. Some of you love it. Praise God for people like you. But I can't believe my good fortune that this is my job. And I know he feels the same way. And that's another great way to know is you can't wait to start. Ministry or not, may all of you feel that way about the work you do with your life because you get one shot at this, one time on this planet. Why would you spend it doing something you hate to get money you don't need? Here's um. What do you say to someone who feels hopeless, like the sister in your church who committed suicide? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say to somebody who's hopeless is that for many, this world just may really be too much, and that's one of the things we had to really confront in the counseling. Was the reason she was so hopeless was not because she was weak, but because she felt everything in a way that most of us are numb. She, she would hear about 40,000 kids dying every day of hunger, and I would just go, wow, that's really sad. I feel it, but I don't feel it the way she does. She 
was like somebody with no skin. Everything that touched her hurt. And one of the things we just had to accept was God gave you that heart of total sensitivity. There's no filter or buffer for you. And it may be that this world will have the better of you. It will defeat you and overwhelm you. But that's why our greatest hope is not placed only on here. This earth story is not the whole story. And so for a person who's hopeless, I say, we will yet hold out in hope that God will show up in the 11th hour and will do something amazing, even in this life. But I want you to know that the great news of the gospel is that if this life holds nothing of redeeming value at the end, still our hope is that there is a life to come that is filled with hope that it will be fully justified. I begin there because if you don't, then you're going to always hold out this false promise that it's going to get better. And I've actually walked with people from this earthly life didn't get any better. It just didn't. It got harder and harder and harder, but God became more and more and more to them. And their hope in eternity just kept growing as their hope in this life faded. And so I would say that to them. Not to say choose the exit. I, I, I was devastated that she made that choice. We had promised one another she would not go there. But there was a day, and you know, part of it was clinical. I mean, um, it's, it's a disease, this depression at that level. Um, but I don't want anyone to take that route because God is worth hoping in. But I also want to know that my greatest promises for anybody are not to be found here in this earthly life in the life to come. And that's important to remember. Okay, as a reminder, uh, if you have any questions, you could either text them into that fine uh, special phone number or uh, you can raise your hand or you can write on a piece of paper and, and send it up. This is some, um, was sent, okay, I see that one just came in. Uh, do you plan to have more kids how have your kids challenged or inspired your walk with God? Um, that's a very interesting question. We plan to have two kids. We ended up with four. Because um, God is so generous, I guess. <laughs> uh, God uses kids more than anything else in your life to teach you what he's like and to shape you. I'm convinced of that. If you're younger, God is using you to shape your parents <laughs> and to torture them. Um, <clears throat> you are not so easy to raise. And some of you are harder than the average to raise, and your parents are becoming quite strong because of you. I think God uses children to teach us unselfishness, really. Because what's in it for you raising a kid? What's the, where's the payoff? Who, who does this? Who brings home a creature that needs 24-7 care? You have to wipe feces off their soiled buttocks. You've got to feed them in the middle of the stinking night. You've got to watch out for them, bind their wounds, force them to eat food they don't want to eat, make them study in ways that is good for their future. Who wants that? What kind of life is that? What motivates anyone to do that? It's love. Love begets life. And so we procreate sometimes without knowing any better. Right? And how many mom, moms and dads looked at us and said, why do we do this? Oh. But God is using those children to cure us of selfishness in a big way. So at our church, um, people ask me quite often, how many kids should we have? And the, the answer I always give back is N plus one. 
N is the number you think is the maximum you and your spouse can handle, and add one to it. Because when you're at the max for you, that's as much as you could do in your own strength, in your own finances, in your own everything. We can handle this. Well, then you won't grow to those kids as much. But when you add the one, you're now in the realm of God help us or we're dead. <laughs> Children will teach you to pray. Because, I, honestly, with four, I was like, I, I grew up in a family of two. I couldn't conceive a family bigger than four people. In my mind, there was no category to accept it. And then I had four, and I'm like, this is so overwhelming. But then, in a way, it's all starting to make sense. And I was driven to pray because I could not give the adequate one-on-one attention and discipleship I wanted to to all four of my kids until I started to pray. And then I started to be able to do it. And so I've, I've given that advice to so many people and it's amazing. They'll say, you're insane. I, I, my N is zero then. <laughs> like, you cheater. You know it's not zero. And now what's happening is our families are growing. And the average family size is three kids at our church. We have, we have several with four, several with five kids. Some people are contemplating a sixth kid. Now, I'm not suggesting be reckless and irresponsible. But I am saying this. Don't stop having kids because you like the control and the comfort of your life. That's not a good reason to just stop having kids. If you're that comfortable and that controlled, something is not right with your life. Are we going to have more kids? We, it would be a, I'd have to name the kid Jesus if I had another kid because it would be an immaculate, miraculous conception right now. But I will say this. We have talked very seriously about adopting. And because my wife and I no longer look um, wistfully upon the diaper-changing, sleepless night years of our life, um, we, we would adopt probably a sibling pair, maybe between 9 and 11 years old, because we find out those are the, the kids most difficult to place into adoption. Nobody wants older kids who are coming as a package deal, but we would. And we've prayed and, and felt very called if we'd adopt, we'd adopt from the African-American community rather than from the Asian. Yeah. Could you uh, just share um, that idea that we were talking about, about the fourth grade and the importance mm. of that? Yes. I, I had an executive mentor once um, who, who said that most sociologists agree fourth grade is the most formative, important year of a human being's life. Uh, it's because fourth grade generally, give or take a year or two, represents the borderline between childhood and the time when you're losing your innocence. When you realize that the world isn't so nice and not everybody likes you and you bear some of the most defining life wounds right around that age. And, and as he said that, I was in a group of other people, other Christian leaders, and we all thought back and remembered how formative fourth grade really was. Um, it's important that somebody invest in people's lives right around that age because if you think back, playground bullying or being excluded from the group, some of those things stay with you all your life. And you could be 27 and find out you're still on this life mission to become one of the group. But that's the thing that haunts you all your life is I've never been included. I just want to be one of everybody. I know other people who never once heard a kind word and their father or mother said something so devastating to them around that age that they spent the rest of their life hoping beyond hope for one word of real approval from their parents. I once sat in a room with a 65-year-old man 
weeping uncontrollably saying, I have achieved every career goal I ever set out to, and my dad never once said he was proud of me. I did, uh, he would get a promotion, and the first person he would call is dad. Just hope, dad, dad, I'm the executive VP now. So, what do you want? How come you're the executive VP and not the P? That's all he got. His dad died, and that's when the dam broke. Because this quest that defined his life could no longer be fulfilled because the man whose voice he yearned to hear couldn't speak anymore. You look back on the fourth grade years of your life and in in your children's lives, and you'll realize those are precious years to guard where somebody needs to speak truth and bring healing. And so I was alerted to that before any of my kids got into fourth grade, and praise God for that because I was very alert during those years. And that was around the time that I made a practice. You know, pastors, we often get Mondays off, and I made a a practice every Monday I'll take one of my four kids out for a special father-son, daddy-daughter time, and we would just connect. And since I have four kids, and there's usually four Mondays in a month, it worked out great. Um, And each kid was so different, each kid. My oldest son, I just built model airplanes and stuff with him. We just sat and talked. Uh, My third just wanted to throw the football around, and then as we were sweaty, we would cool down together in the yard. My baby girl just wants a strawberry-sprinkled donut at Dunkin' Donuts, and we just sit and talk. You know, and, and my other daughter, we'd draw together and things like that. So just connecting points where I'm speaking into their lives, saying, Dad and Mom and the Lord Jesus will always be there for you. And if you sustain a wound you can't bear, you don't have to bear it alone. And I spoke words to them that no child should grow up not hearing from their dad. Does that make sense to you? So be alert. If you're a parent, man, when your kid turns about seven or eight, high alert, get involved. Don't be buried in an 80-hour-a-week job thinking that's what your kids need from you is money. Shame on if you do that. You'll lose your kids. They won't even know who you are. That's good. Ellie, did you hear that? Ellie's our children's ministry director, so she's on, she's on it. Right. Fourth right. grade, man, fourth grade. Uh, Put the best teachers in fourth grade, right? <laughs> um, what does your devotional life look like? What one or two things help develop discipline in your devotional life over the years? Marrying my wife helped me more than anything because she's a very um, disciplined morning person. So unnatural and sick to me when I meet morning people. I'm a night owl. So it's not unusual for me to be up past 2 a.m. doing stuff, working. But my wife wakes up at the butt crack of dawn every day. It's really weird. She doesn't need a clock. It's like she's some kind of strange creature. She pops up awakened. I'm a very light sleeper, so when she wakes up, when the kids wake up, I can't help it. I just wake up too. And the early morning hours are some of the most valuable hours of the day. It doesn't come naturally to me. How many of you are like me? Just early morning is sickening. Yeah. But you know what, though? Even if that's not your nature, I will bet you it's in those hours that God would meet you. And here's the thing why the early morning matters so much, because nothing has happened yet to absorb your mind. The brain is a computer, and if you start feeding it cycles, it'll turn all day long. And once you get started, there's so many things that demand from you that you can't really find any hour to sit and just be still. You could. You could be at the coffee shop, but you're like jittery because like, I just got to hurry up with my QT so I can get back to the stuff I've got to do. Pick up my kids from gymnastics, and you're on a rush. But in the early morning, there's just quiet, space, peace. 
And that's a wonderful time to calibrate your heart and say, all right, Lord, I'm getting ready for the day. The other thing was watching a movie about Jesus. Uh, it was an ABC or CBS-produced movie. But the actor they chose for Jesus was exactly the face I always pictured in my brain for what Jesus' face looked like. And after seeing that movie, um, here's what started happening for me. I would wake up in the morning, and I would see that actor's face like he was just sitting at the foot of my bed. And here, I have this kind of vivid imagination. Here's what I pictured in the mornings for like a month after seeing that movie. Jesus is sitting on the bed going, oh, you're awake finally. Hey, get up, wash your face. Let's spend a little time. I, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen today. I've got great plans for you. Let's have our briefing. Let's sit for a while. I pictured this invitation from the face of Jesus, and that completely changed for me what I thought devotions were about. I used to think devotions were like being a monk and doing my study and I journal and I, you know, it's that dead in my spirit because it did nothing for me. It's just not how I'm wired. But when Jesus said, there's a lot that's going to happen today, you better be ready. Let's go. Let's, let's just start. I, I'm a military buff. So when, when he phrased it as a mission briefing for the day, I was all in. I was like, that's just awesome. <laughs> I don't want this day to whip me. And so I would begin just sitting, listening. And that's another thing is I listen far more than I talked. That's my prayer life today. It's 90% silence and 10% very well-chosen, expensive words. Okay? What I say to him, it's got some weight because I, I'm making some promises. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm affirming things in him, and uh, I do a lot more listening. And I, I want to encourage you by saying I also do some falling asleep while I'm praying too. It's not, it's not terrible. You wake up and you just keep going. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Um, I asked that question, then one kind of to undercut that. Maybe there are questions that we have, but they're maybe having a little bit of time crystallizing. I don't know if this kind of a time would be helpful for us to continue to have at some other point. Would that be? If it is, then I would ask that you would continue to send these questions. Here's the secret. That's actually my phone number. Um, you could just email. You could just text it to me. If you, oh, there's one. If you, <laughs> if you have um, other questions, we're gonna need to cut our time. There's one last question we'll get to. But if you have questions and enough come in that I think are relevant enough to the group, then we'll have a, a brief time at our retreat to uh, to talk through some of these other things. Okay. So please do think through. Um, talk with other people. If there's a question that you have, practically, theologically, ministerially, relationally, whatever that might be, uh, you could obviously you could just talk to Pastor Dave. Um, that's one way to do it. Or if you want um, and feel like this kind of a, a dialogue would be helpful, then you could text that in. Okay. Last question before we uh, before we close out. You mentioned that you forgot about the commitment you made to serve God in college. And my mom's calling. Hold on. <laughs> okay. You mentioned that you forgot about the commitment you made to serve God in college. Do you think there are such things as mistaken commitments, i.e., it was just an emotional reply to God at the time versus real commitment? Yeah, I, I'm not. Re I don't really buy it. I don't. I don't think there are mistaken commitments. I think there, are, unless you're just really not very bright. Um, you know when you're feeling something, don't you? Right? 
I mean, it's not like you I think uh, something's happening. You know when you have a thought or a feeling or an intention. Let's not suddenly become stupid in the rearview mirror, but so smart in the moment, right? Right now, you're wide awake, you're, most of you. You're listening, and you're acknowledging the words, and something may be happening in your life. If that's the case, then remember what I preached today. The difference between things that grow and things that die is follow-through. I don't think there are mistaken commitments. I just think there are commitments that die on the vine because ne- we never do anything when it's fresh to follow through. So God said, yeah, I remember that one time in high school when you said that. Man, was that a real moment. I put it right in your heart. And remember how then you did like absolutely nothing <laughs> after? Do you remember that? How like for five years you never did a thing? Now you're going to look back and go, I wonder if God actually moved. Of course he did. Of course he did. Why else would you register that as, oh, I feel something? And that's why I'm suggesting to us that if you really want to test how strong is it, how valid is it, follow through just a little bit. Do something that represents the next step. If God takes that next step as an offering and gives you another inspiration, another calling, you're on a, tr- you're on a journey then. You're on track. But if you answer it and it's a big thud, then maybe you're like, okay, at least th- that was a calling for today's obedience. That's not a journey for a lifetime. Does that make sense? So I think the, the best thing to do in general if you want to grow is every time God moves, obey. Follow through, even if it's just a baby step. And then the things that really come from God will really grow step by step. And that's what Jesus said. The one who's faithful with a little will always be given more. You know, that's how my journey to seminary started was I called my friend and said, hey, this is a crazy thought. You want to send me the course catalog from your seminary in an application form? That was a baby step. But that, that course catalog arrived the same day as my graduate school course catalog. And I sat at my dining table, opened both books up, and I was looking at course listings. On the seminary one, it was like Discipleship 101 methodologies of evangelism. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I can't believe I can learn this. And that this one was ion transport channels and membranes. And I was like, oh, that really sucks vigorously. That's like the worst. My heart was dying looking at this one. And I'm looking at that one. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And that little baby step led to something that God used to shake my heart in the right direction. And sometimes that's how it starts. A journey of a 1,000 miles starts with one single step. Confucius said all right, all right, excellent. Uh, I hope that was helpful. I think that was, yeah, I hope that was clarifying for all of us. Again, um, if you have questions, uh, all of this stuff is going to be, all of the talks, um, every time Pastor Dave opens his mouth, um, that's all going to be online. Um, I've, I've recorded all the uh, mealtime conversations, and he had a bug when he was at James and Casey's house. So um, just kidding. All the talks that we've done in this context, uh, sermons and this Q&A will be online. Um, again, if you have questions that you feel like would be helpful to be, uh, even if you're not going to be at the retreat, you could send those in, and then um, we'll make sure to get those up online also. Okay. Let me, uh, I'll pray for us. Pastor Dave's going to be doing a lot, a lot of praying uh, at the retreat, too, so let me pray, and then we'll bounce. Father in heaven, thank you so much that there is um, such a blessing in having wisdom through the ages passed on to us. We thank you for um, the accumulation of, of wisdom that each of us um, that each of us has and that each of us is. And we thank you that uh, through Pastor Dave, um, he is funneling uh, experiences and conversations and commitments and prayers and all of these things 
uh, filtered through the lens of Scripture and communicated to us in such a way that we might be aided so that we can move forward into the journey with a little bit more confidence that we're doing it in the ways of God. And so may all that was helpful continue to be remembered and be acted out on, and all that um, confuses us, um, help us to seek deeper clarity in that as well. Would you bless us as we go? Thank you so much for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, y'all. Um, three o'clock is when we're supposed to be meeting to check in to the hotel. Okay. So um, you can on the way as you're going, pick up lunch, and then we'll see you guys at three o'clock. You can be there. If not, then uh, we'll see you guys hopefully very soon. Four, 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 four. There has been progress in those lives in a way that um, would have not been anticipated a year ago. Pal. Pal. Pastor Albert, could I get a mute on this mic?